just waiting to see if everyone has found their way back from our breakout rooms. Uh, Connor, yeah, you're giving me the thumbs up. Everyone's back. Hopefully not too many people lost in cyberspace out there. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. I am, uh, I'm just kind of on my, on my laptop scrolling through all the images, taking a look at all these, uh, all these faces. Uh, some people I haven't seen in a while and, and uh, just so good to see you guys. Uh, it's, it's interesting to, it's interesting to be able to, to kind of interact a little on Sunday mornings. It's a, a little, a little more like what we're used to. And so, so glad to be with you. Uh, I'm going to be reading this morning's passage from scripture, and then we'll dive in. So the first reading this morning, it comes from Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter one, and the next some verses from chapter two as well. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So I'm just going to pause before I continue. What do you think so far? Pretty encouraging words, eh? Pretty encouraging. Meaningless. It's not exactly the most encouraging verse in the Bible. Um, but what it lacks in encouragement, it makes up for in relevance. Uh, some of you may have read an article that appeared in the New York Times by Adam Grant a few weeks ago. I think it circulated pretty widely. He was talking about how most people uh, don't find themselves on either the extreme of experiencing depression or experiencing like real flourishing in life these days, but they find themselves somewhere in the middle. And the word that he used was languishing. And he describes languishing this way. He says, languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield, and it might be the dominant emotion of 2021. Does that sound about right? Um, now, you know, if, if we were at a, on a Sunday morning, I would say quick show of hands. Does languishing seem like a fitting word for you? So you might want to just do that. Just if languishing seems like a fitting word for you, just throw your hand up and say, yeah, this is, it is like a murky, yeah, I'm seeing, I see that hand, I see that hand. Um, I wonder how many of us would admit to having similar thoughts to the teacher as we fumble our way through the fog of this global pandemic with its lockdowns and its stay at home orders. How many of us have asked questions that we've never asked before? And how many of us have maybe come up with answers that we would never dream of uttering out loud let alone recording for posterity, as the teacher in Ecclesiastes did. Well, thank you, teacher, and thank you, Ecclesiastes, for leading the way and for suggesting that there might be a place for all of our seemingly unorthodox ranting, too. It's actually quite amazing to me when I think about it that the Bible's selection committee chose to include this book. Because if the point of the Bible is to draw us closer to God, why would you have a book whose main point seems to be that everything in life is meaningless? Why would you include that? For me, it's kind of like you're applying for a job and you submit your resume and your list of references. And one of the references you include is someone who actually doesn't really think too highly of the work you've done. And so if the prospective employer were to call them, they, they would say, actually, I don't like the work they did. It, it was no good. It wasn't helpful. That's kind of what Ecclesiastes does. Someone is trying to, he's wrestling with what life is all about and saying, you know what, this life I'm living, it's kind of meaningless. It's kind of pointless. Similar, though, to the Psalms of, of lament that we find in the book of Psalms, this book in the Old Testament affirms the very real emotions that we experience as we struggle to understand the meaning and the purpose of our lives. 
I read uh, a quote recently from Rich Velotis, who's a pastor in New York City, in a book that he's just put out recently. He says, the sad truth about modern spirituality is that we often avoid feeling our own pain and in the process avoid feeling the pain of others. Neither of these is healthy. It's not healthy to avoid uh, feeling our own or expressing our own emotion. And it's not a good thing to be blind to the emotions or the experiences of the people around of others. So we need to find a better way. Well, for the next five weeks, we're going to use Ecclesiastes as a guide that can help us explore some of the ways that we try to make sense of life, the barriers that we run into along the way, and how Jesus continues to speak into humanity's search for meaning here in 2021. But before we go any further, I'm going to finish this morning's reading. So the first couple of verses, not very encouraging. Let's pick it up. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, and then chapter 2, starting at verse 17. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain, even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Well, if you thought the passage might take a turn from the better, you were mistaken. Uh, I was listening to a podcast this week, uh, The Bible for Normal People, and Pete Enns made this comment about Ecclesiastes. He says, don't hand this to someone who's been a Christian for 15 minutes. Like, these are tough questions. These are difficult conclusions that this guy comes up with. You need some experience under your belt in order to engage with Ecclesiastes. And I know that, of course, not everyone on this call this morning has a lot of life experience or a lot of faith experience. So I'm gonna to try to tread lightly with a reminder that the best way for us to wrestle with scripture is together, like we're doing here. So an important question for us to ask about this is who wrote this book? Um, the truth is nobody really knows who wrote this book. The title Ecclesiastes is a Greek word, which translates a Hebrew word called Kohelet. Uh, that's the, the Hebrew title for this book of the Bible. Kohelet means something like teacher. Uh, something like uh, someone who would gather people around them to share their wisdom. Um, the message translation of the Bible says the quester. So someone who's kind of on a quest and wants to invite people into that. Now, based on the introduction and what you've probably heard historic traditionally, it sounds like Kohelet, the teacher, is Solomon, um, son of David, king in Jerusalem. But based on certain words that appear in the book of Ecclesiastes that could not possibly have been written at the time of Solomon, most biblical scholars believe that it was actually a later writer who was using the character of Solomon as a literary device. Something like, you all took Solomon's advice to heart. You all understood how wise he was. Well, I want to stand in that tradition and I want to share something significant with you about what life is all about. Now, the main complaint in this book seems to be that there is no prophet or no gain in anything 
that we do in life. So if there's no profit, then there's no point. That's kind of the summary of the book. But there's this word at the beginning, a Hebrew word, havel, which literally means uh, vapor or breath. So something that just kind of happens and then disappears. Um, but what it means kind of contextually is insubstantial, vain, or futile. Uh, every once in a while, Jude will ask me, uh, he'll hand me his phone and he'll say, hey, dad, try out this game. And he'll ask me to play this little game on his phone. And it, like, it'll be something like there's a little ball bouncing around and you have to get it from one place to the next, or, or it'll be some little puzzle thing. And, I'm, and I do it and I get to like six. And then he laughs and I'm like, no, 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 give me another try. That was my first try. And I do it. And then I get to like 12 and then I try it. Cause I, I'm like, this is not good. Like I've got to do better than 12. And I eventually I get it up to like 24. I'm like, ha 24. And he's like, dad, like my record 6,420 or something like that. And, and I'm just like, I, and I just, I'm like, give the phone back. I'm like, this is stupid. This is pointless. This is meaningless. This is a waste of time. Well, in Ecclesiastes, the teacher's not playing a game, but he's wrestling with some of life's deepest conundrums, wondering if in the end, Maybe everything we do is just a stupid waste of time, including our work. Verse 21, for a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. Uh, so he's saying, I spent my entire life building something, investing in something, creating something, only to have it handed over to someone else I don't think so. He's like, this makes no sense at all. So this passage in this book of the Bible brings up a lot of different questions. One of them being like, what is the value of our daily work? How can we find meaning in the midst of our labor? And as I was preparing over the last couple of weeks, I was wondering if there has ever been a season when more people were collectively thinking about the meaning of their work, right? Now your work can look various different things. Maybe it's paid employment. Uh, maybe it's raising children. Maybe it's school. Uh, maybe it's a combination of those. You know, you're in school, but you're also working and uh, a combination of those. So our work may look different, but I think over the course of the last 14 months, a lot of us have been asking questions about the meaning of the work we're doing. Our routines are changing. Our roles are shifting. Our measurables are becoming foggy our motivation often fading. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I'm hearing from so many people. And just the fact of how this pandemic has affected our work and what we do kind of during our like nine to five, so to speak, uh, there are so many now classic storylines that affect our experience of work. Think of it, um, the classic working or going to school in your PJs. I mean, it's, it's like a meme now, the guy, you know, wearing a dress shirt and boxers or something like that, or the, the person who forgets that they're, you know, on a, an important call and they're wearing their bathrobe or something like that. How about like having a workstation in your kitchen or your bedroom or maybe your laundry room? I mean, this is like how we work now. Um, maybe pets or children, or if you are a child, your parents interrupting an important video call. Like, mom, I'm in my class right now. Or like, why, are you, why is the dog like jumping on my lap in the middle of this interview? Um, students turning their cameras off in class so the teacher can't see them. I mean, what a different world this is. I mean, in the past, if you'd wanted to sneak a little note to your friend or something, you'd have to do it when the teacher wasn't looking. Now you just turn your camera off. Like this is like, it's so different. 
parents checking in on their kids' teachers during class. I mean, never before would you have like stood at the back of class and just watched your, your kid's teacher. Like that wouldn't happen. But the other thing that happens is, is now teachers are watching their, kid, their students' parents as well through the screen, right? They, they hear the conversation going on in the background. So like everyone's work is just so different than it ever has been before. And it's all pretty entertaining until it isn't until you find yourself asking big questions about the work that you're doing and what it all means at the end of the day. For students, so much of the school experience involves being with friends and in the classroom and a hundred little interactions that make school what it is. And when you don't have that anymore, well, you know, like it can feel kind of pointless some days, can it? For stay-at-home parents, who I just wanna say are the OG work from home crew, a significant part of raising kids involves doing so alongside others with the help of grandparents, of neighbors, and of friends. And when you have to just raise your kids on your own, well, this whole thing just seems so meaningless sometimes. For those in helping professions, being disconnected from the people that you serve, having to reorient your job without any personal interaction, well, it can be dizzying. What am I doing? For those who are used to working in fast-paced environments, surrounded by a buzz of activity, a stay-at-home order, geez, that can suck the oxygen right out of your lungs. What am I even doing? What is the point of this? For those who've lost employment due to shutdowns or have businesses have gone under, a whole new set of what now questions rise to the surface. Now, I don't know what it was that led Kohelet, the teacher, to ponder the meaninglessness of life. But what I do know is that whenever things change in the world around us, we tend to take stock. And when we have some extra time to think, which a lot of us have these days, we ask questions. Is this what I want to do with my life? Could I be putting myself to better use? What difference am I making? Where's the meaning in all of this? A few weeks ago, our 18-year-old daughter, Sophia, started a new job, and she is doing some cleaning for a renovation company. And so they kind of are flipping units, and, and when they're done flipping the unit, they have a crew of three of them come in, and they clean up, and they're scraping paint off the floors, and they're mopping, and they're cleaning the windows, and they're doing like a lot of hard work. But when she comes home at the end of the day, she's like, like tired, but energized from this hard work, right? And it's just like someone who just starting a new job, it's like working for the first time, like the energy of that hard work. Well, the teacher of Ecclesiastes was way beyond enjoying hard work. Hard work was passe. I hated life, he writes, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated life. Now, I want to follow up on an observation that he makes in chapter four. It gives us a clue about where many of us tend to get off track. I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. If we allow ourselves, whatever kind of work that we do, to be drawn into this all-consuming lifelong comparison game, trying to get the same grades as the next kid in class, trying to get the same promotion as the other person, trying to have our children grow up the same as the neighbor. Like if we play this game in the work that we do, whatever it is, that we're constantly comparing ourselves against one another, then we're like someone chasing after the wind, he says, which of course, you know, you never win. You never catch the wind. You never keep it, right? You're always chasing after it. Satisfaction is always going to be out of reach. 
Now a desire for acceptance and approval and affirmation, a desire for comfort, for personal growth and for new experiences, all of these can be healthy, absolutely, but they can also become hazardous. There's a proverb, Proverb 23 verse four, that says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. And now, of course, it's not only chasing after riches that will wear us down, it's really chasing anything. It's allowing anything to create this kind of anxiety in us that takes away from our ability to be present to the moment that we're in. Think back to the, the last passage I read from Ecclesiastes there. The teacher says that he hated life. He hated life because of this work. Now, if you hate life, and I, I can guarantee that some of the people listening on this call today have said this or had these thoughts this year. That's a sure sign that you're wearing yourself out, that you're chasing after the wind. You're trying to get something that you will never get. Mark Twain puts it this way. He makes this great observation. He says, the fellows who groan and sweat under the weary load of toil that they bear never can hope to do anything great. How can they when their souls are in a ferment of revolt against the employment of their hands and brains? What a great line. Think about that. Our souls, the essence of who we are, in revolt against our thoughts and our actions. I want to read a passage from Luke chapter 12. It's about time we get a, a sense of what Jesus has to say about all of this chasing after the wind that we find ourselves doing. This is Luke 12, 22 to 31. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn that God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do you not set your heart on what you will eat or drink? Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Now, if this wasn't Jesus, I might be tempted to dismiss these words as wishful thinking. Like, okay, sure, don't worry. But it was Jesus. And so I want to listen to what he has to say. This is the same person who said the famous words of Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. When our toil, like think of the, think of the language that the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes uses this toil, this labor, these anxious thoughts. It's all of this intensity. And Jesus says, when, when you're wearied and you're burdened by that, come to me. Now think about it. Jesus spoke these words about resting to people who literally could not afford to rest from their work. We might think like, oh, it was a simpler time, whatever. And we might think, I can't afford to, to, to let this go. I can't afford to decrease the intensity of my work or whatever. 
But Jesus spoke to people who literally needed to work as much as they possibly could just to put food on their plates. And he said this because he knew then, and he knows now, that our work has to be part of a greater and healthier whole. Even the teacher of Ecclesiastes, after all of the shade he throws on the meaninglessness of hard work, shifts his perspective and offers us a glimmer of hope in chapter 3, verse 13. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Satisfaction. This is what's possible for us. But how? How do we find satisfaction in our work? Well, we go back to Jesus' words in Luke, in the passage from Luke. He says, don't set your heart on these things. And that's the thing that stood out to me as I was reflecting on this passage. The picture that the teacher in Ecclesiastes paint, it's like this, there's so much anxiety, so many thoughts, constantly thinking about what is the value of this? What does this mean? Where is this going? And Jesus comes and says, like, don't set your mind on all of that. Instead, seek the kingdom, come and rest with me, and all the rest will begin to make sense. The gift of God, Ecclesiastes reminds us, is to enjoy what you have and what you do and let go of the rest. And that's the invitation for us this morning. Eugene Peterson writes that anything and everything that we believe about God finds grounding in what we do in the course of any and every ordinary day. We are not permitted to segregate our salvation away from the details of getting around and making a living. So on those days when you can't seem to make much sense of life, when the work that you do feels maybe void of meaning, feels insignificant, feels haval like breath, invite Jesus to give rest to your weary and burdened and maybe even languishing soul. A couple of days ago, our pastoral team assembled and dropped in the mail some packs to send to our church community as encouragement. And some of you may have received them already, um, a little package with some things in it that we hope will speak to this moment that we're walking through as a church community. One of the items was a little card like this, and it's an encouragement. It's a little uh, a prayer of reflection that could be read every morning. It's called a liturgy for the ritual of morning coffee or tea if you're not a coffee drinker. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to read one of the lines toward the end, and then I'm going to pray for, to, for us together. Let me enter this new day aware of my need and awake to your grace, O Lord. Let's pray together. God, we want to enter this day and this week aware both of our need to make sense of life that is just changing so much around us all the time, um, but also aware of your presence right here with us. God, I pray for each one of us as we raise children, as we do our studies, as we work away at our jobs, that we would not fall under the burden of all of the thoughts and all of the anxiety that surrounds us with respect to this important part of our life, but that we would be able to find rest in you, that we would have discover the gift of God being satisfied with where we are in the present moment and allowing the future to come as it comes, to not worry about what's coming next. God, I pray that we would be able to take these things to heart, that we would be able to both acknowledge the reality of the kind of different emotions and thoughts that we're having during this season, but also respond in a way that invites your, you to be present with us. 
remind us of this both throughout the rest of this day and the week to come. In Christ's name, amen.